The abuse of power in your organization can destroy employee engagement, productivity, and turn your business culture toxic. It's a serious issue, yet it's often a taboo topic that gets brushed aside because it's easier to make excuses, call it a personality conflict, or ignore it altogether because we just don't know how to intentionally manage the use of power in our organization. But that doesn't make things better. My next guest can. She's Dr. Mabel Miguel, and she can help you understand how to manage power in your organization. This is Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hassel-Kelchner, giving you the inside scoop on how to ignite more business success by doing the right things in the right way. Brought to you by Business MO LLC. Dr. Miguel is Professor of Leadership and Management at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Keenan Flagler Business School, and she's director of its Global Education Initiative. A citizen of the world, Dr. Miguel is uniquely qualified to lead the Global Education Initiative. She's born in Argentina, she's lived in Venezuela, Barbados, France, and Turkey, and is fluent in several languages, including leadership. She leads global education programs and initiatives and has developed and taught leadership skills for organizations in the United States, South America, Asia, and Europe. She's also taught core leadership and management skills to MBA candidates at Keenan Flagler across their various MBA programs. Her corporate clients read like a who's who and include Altria, Bank of America, Caterpillar, Cisco, ExxonMobil, FedEx, and many more. She's also done consulting work with various government agencies and departments, including the Department of Defense, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the U.S. Air Force, Army, and Navy. What I really love about her is how her executive development work over the years, how she's been actively bridging the gap between theory and practice. Let's bring her on now. Welcome to Business Confidential Now, Dr. Miguel. Thank you very much, Hannah. Please call me Mabel. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, wonderful. It's a treat to have you here. You know, power in organizations is such a fascinating topic and one that's not talked about too often in the hallways <laughs> inside organizations. So I'd really like to start at the beginning so everybody has the same baseline understanding about what you mean about power in an organization and where it comes from. Where does it come from? Oh, certainly. I think I could start by quoting one of my favorite researchers and authors, uh, Rosabeth Moskanter. She said that power was business's last dirty little secret. Those who have it deny having it. Those who use it do so secretly. And, and it really comes from a basic misunderstanding of what power really is. When you look at a pure definition of power, it's simply the capacity to influence other people. That's all power is. And if you think about the capacity of influencing other people, that is what you do every single day at work and I'm going to say in your private personal life as well. Uh, when you try to uh, get the budget approved, when you try to get a project supported, uh, a promotion for a subordinate, a- anything that you try to do involves the use of power. So people who don't have power, as a matter of fact, powerlessness is every bit as bad as abuse of power. 
Um, you asked me what, uh, where power comes from. A- any individual's power in organizations is a combination of positional power and personal power. Uh, the positional power is the power that comes to you because of the position that you occupy and the attributes of that position. And I can go into those attributes in more detail later. While personal power is the power that you have in yourself because of your expertise, because of your track record, and a variety of variables affect the degree of personal power that you have. So, the thought I would like people to start with right now is that power is good. Having the capacity to influence others is a good thing. And the more you understand about power, the better you're going to be at using it responsibly. Well, that's interesting because so many people seem to just use it without thinking about responsibility. How do employee beliefs and values impact their use of power and the culture of an organization? Oh, that's a big question. Um, If you have a personal belief that uh, using power is somehow a bad thing, if you believe this because of your upbringing, because of your values, uh, and this usually happens in cultures, and I'll use the term broadly, where abuse of power is not atypical. Cultures when people feel that whomever has power, whichever type of power they have, use it to basically oblige people to do what they want, as opposed to persuading, bringing them along, reasoning, a number of approaches. So if people have had bad experience, if they work in organizations with people with power, uh, abuse it, then they're likely to have a very poor impression about power. And then they they shy away from using it. They say things like, oh, I, I don't expect to get power, or I believe uh, politics and politicizing is bad, without really fully understanding what it would be like if you were actually working with somebody for somebody who had no power, somebody who couldn't get you the information you need, the resources you need. Nobody wants that scenario. So one of the first things I do in class is to really explore the attitude that people have towards power and where do these attitudes come from and what would be the result of taking a negative attitude to an extreme? What would you be given up on? What issues might you encounter? Let me follow up with you about the point you made about people's attitudes. When you're consulting with businesses, are there certain types of attitudes or perceptions that you see uh, surface repeatedly that you could could talk about? If I were to say there is one attitude, it tends to be that people are almost apologetic about wanting to have power and being prepared to use it, Uh, particularly when the organizations I work with are here in the U.S. And uh, the, the, the U.S. culture is fairly egalitarian in nature. So people almost think that imposing their will on other people or making other people do things or ordering people around, in other words, using power over others, is somehow wrong. And I do not have the same issues when I work um, with organizations that come from higher power distance culture. A high power distance culture, uh, there is a belief that power is a good thing 
that the hierarchy is a good thing, that it clarifies who gives orders, who obeys them, who's responsible for what. And under those conditions, people are less uh, apologetic about using their power because it is expected. Subordinates expect to be given an order, and they say it's my role to obey it. They do not expect high levels of participation in decision-making. They do not uh, expect they're going to be consulted about their opinion. So the attitude towards power is more accepting in nature. Now, I'm not saying that they will not react negatively to abuse of power. Of course they will, like anyone else. But there is, there is less likely to be uh, this apologetic attitude about using power in a high power distance culture than in a low power distance culture. Uh, did I answer your question, Hannah? Yes, that's really fascinating about, uh, you know, the differences in different parts of the world about the uh, approach to and the appropriateness of the use of power. And since, as you pointed out, in the United States, we try to be a little bit more egalitarian, and especially I would, I would think that with the, the younger generation, there is even a greater desire for input and making a difference and so forth. How would you suggest that senior management address or business owners the impact of employee beliefs about powers? What, what can they do? To be quite frank, is uh, by modeling the correct use of power and uh, by not um, imposing their will, by asking questions, uh, by, uh, by putting their foot down when they need to put their foot down. I tell people, look, when are you going? You have to make a choice. Every time you're going to use your power you, to influence other people, you, have, you make a choice as to what to do. Uh, in the U.S., we have a tendency to prefer to reason with people. So uh, we appeal to their values. This is the right thing to do. This is aligned with the values of the organization. This is really the direction that we're taking with the strategy of the organization. Uh, here are these facts. Here are these figures. So we have this tendency to rely fairly strongly on reason, which is, if you think about it, a fairly egalitarian approach to getting people at uh, to do what you want them to do, to, to appeal to their, to their rationality. And another approach to dealing with power is what we call the law of reciprocity, right? So even if you have the power, how about instead of trying to reason with people, you uh, use your network. And uh, because you have uh, helped somebody with something, they will help you. So one of the strongest sources of personal powers we have are personal networks, because you can do many many things simply influenced by the law of reciprocity. I, I will help people in my network and they will help me. The final uh, approach to use of power or strategy to use of power is a retribution. And a retribution can be more or less subtle. A more subtle kind of retribution is you could go to somebody over whom you have some power and say, hey, Susan, Joe, uh, you know, everyone else has agreed to this change and is, uh, is implementing. So there is a, a, a bit of a negative thrust to this. It's like, do you want to be uh, the person who's not on the train when it leaves the station, right? There is a subtext of that. Another type of retribution is really bringing out the the big guns is actually telling somebody, well, you know, do you like your job? Because we are going in this direction and you better 
uh, line up, or there'll be no future for you here. Now, that's a, that's a coercion. That is very strong. And so I work with senior managers in trying to understand under what situation would you want to use each of the approaches. And we all agree that coercion has to be used sparingly. I mean, fear is a very, very good motivator. It's a strong motivator, but it's a short-term motivator. It has, it has short legs. You know, while you're there, people are scared. They will do what you want. But the minute you're not there, it won't happen. So fear is a motivator. Coercion uh, is more likely to get you compliance than commitment. So we always talk about what you want from your people is commitment. So use coercion sparingly. So when would you actually use your power in a coercive fashion? Well, there are situations that being a leader is not a popularity contest. So uh, there is a violation, an ethical violation, a legal violation, a safety violation, a policy violation. This is a line that is not crossed. And then I come to you and I say, no, this is unacceptable. And I have the power to make you not do that anymore. So what I do when I work with senior management is I get them to understand the fact that power is a good thing, but how you use it, how you actually go about influencing people, what strategies you use will give power in your organization a good reputation or a bad reputation. And what you want to do is model the correct use of power. So then people in your organization would have a more positive approach towards power. Well, that makes a lot of sense. And I like the distinction that you've drawn between compliance and commitment, that compliance and coercion is to be used very sparingly. So when it comes to the use of power and the impact on employee engagement, tell me how the whole political dynamic fits in. When people talk about politics, in your view, what are they talking about and how does that intersect with the use of power? Politics are basically the tactics that people utilize when they uh, use their power to influence others. They're tactics. Now, um, some tactics are more Machiavellian, some are less Machiavellian. I think what gives politics its bad name are the more Machiavellian uses of uh, politics. Uh, when you know somebody's being a little shady about it. It's not quite speaking the truth. It's using manipulation to influence people. And, you know, I don't think I need to be given very many examples of negative political tactics. We have plenty of them. And uh, But the thing is that if you look at the pure definition of politics, and they're just tactics. And you could have political infighting that is so destructive to an organization, or you could have the two parties agree to collaborate. And it still is a positive use of politics. We just unfortunately have given politics uh, this bad reputation by using it in what I do call more Machiavellian ways. And it is a use of power. That is the tactics you use. All right. That's fair. As far as taking the theory and putting it into practice, what steps do you recommend executives, managers, or even entrepreneurs can take to encourage the responsible use of power so that their business culture stays healthy? Well, I am going to put um, the, uh, my answer in the frame of uh, emotional intelligence leadership theory. Uh, emotional intelligence leadership theory at its most basic level says that in order for you to manage other people well, you need to understand them. 
And in order to understand other people, you need to understand yourself because that gives you a vocabulary or a frame to understand other people. When you put it all together, the narrative goes like this. If you want to be successful as a leader, as a manager, you first need to understand yourself, your personal style, your personality, your values, your skill sets, really have a good uh, idea of who you are. Then you need to manage yourself. In what situations are you going to use this approach versus that approach? So you, we all have favorites. We all have a favorite way of influencing people, for example. We all have a favorite way of dealing with a conflict. Is it appropriate to the situation? That is where self-management comes in. And then we talk about understanding other people and managing other people. So if you use that framework of first, know yourself and manage yourself before you understand other people and manage other people, then if a leader and manager wanted to use this material uh, in their organization, wanted to create a good culture in terms of the use of power, they would start by doing a self-assessment. How much power do I have now? What is my attitude towards power? Where does my power come from? Is it all positional power? Positional power comes to you because of the position you occupy and the components among the components of a positional power, you have formal authority and that is the power you have to hire people, fire them, reward them because of the position that you occupy, your executive director, you're a manager, for example. But that's not the only source of positional power. Some positions uh, are more central to the organization and more relevant to its mission than others. Right? Some positions have more autonomy than other uh, positions. All of these are components of the power of a position. If you stop and think about positional power, it's not just the title. It really has to do with access to information, with working on priority items for the organization, all of those of being irreplaceable for the organization, what you call a positions, right, in organizations. Then you look at your personal power as a manager, as a leader, and you say, okay, how about personal power? How much personal power do I have? And here the components are your expertise, your track record, your legitimacy, are your values and the, 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 your behaviors aligned with the values of the organization, um, your interpersonal uh, relationships. Do people like you? Do they, do they enjoy being with you? Your personal networks, all of that is part of your personal power. And we know that personal power is actually stronger than positional power. If you put somebody in a position that has a lot of power who does not have personal power, the position tends to lose power over time. If you put somebody that has a, a lot of personal power in a position that doesn't have a lot of power, the position tends to gain power over time just because of the presence of that person. So the very first thing that the leader and manager should do, whether they're an entrepreneur, whether they're in a corporate setting, is to do what I call a power audit. Understand your positional power, understand your personal power, um, where does it come from, how do you end up there, and, and then think, how do I responsibly use this power in different situations? Then you can easily communicate to your organization, to your people, look, power is good, but there are ways to use it. So I do believe that you lead by example in this, uh, in this whole field of power. 
How many people, as they get promoted, say, into a new position, do you think really do one of those personal power audits? <laughs> I can tell you that I work with some very, very senior people, and almost invariably, they have never heard of this. They have never heard about doing a power audit, assessing. They are, uh, in the end, they're like 12 sources of power between positional and personal power. And they're stunned. They say, why didn't I know this earlier in my career? The thing is, if you had enough experience and you have personal and positional power, when you look at the items, you say, oh, wow, I do have this power and I have used it and I have even used it wisely, but I didn't use it as consciously as I could have used it if I knew about it. So when I work with senior people, they want to know where this was all their lives and they gain an understanding looking in the rearview mirror, let's say. When I work with young people, whether they are my MBA students, whether it, they're new managers who uh, I work with, when they're corporations, organized programs, uh, educational programs, I say, look, it is a tremendous thing to do an audit of yourself at this moment and say, well, how much power do I have right now? And where does it come from? And how can I get more power? What positions are more strategic for me going forward? And so it, it is a little bit of awareness of just understanding um, the power they have at the moment and understanding their responsibility of how to use it. Well, I think it's extremely valuable to be able to do that. But in my experience, people don't tend to look inward except maybe to beat themselves up or to experience a little <laughs> bit of the imposter syndrome as they get promoted, like, oh, my God, I've got big shoes to fill or a big office, a big seat to fill. And, you know, am I really up for it? And maybe engage in some exhibit of power that may totally be not fully appropriate for the position and what they're really trying to accomplish because they're being driven by certain insecurities and a fear factor of maybe people that are on their team or whatever is going on. So uh, to be honest with yourself like that, I think is, is tremendous. And I'm just not sure everybody's capable of doing it without some additional coaching or help or resource. And not everybody can necessarily hire you, Mabel. <laughs> so what are they to do? <laughs> Here, but there are things that everybody can do. We talk about self-awareness being fundamental. You cannot lead and manage effectively in the absence of self-awareness. The most self-aware people I know in the world do three things. First of all, they are introspective. You just mentioned how so many of us are not introspective. The most self-aware people I know actually think, uh, but why did I do this? Why am I feeling uncomfortable right now? Why am I feeling successful right now? What just happened in this meeting? Oh, look, there is a little survey here I can complete, the self-assessment. It tells me something new about myself. So they have curiosity to learn more things about themselves and to also think, uh, you know, what's going on in my interactions? Uh, to use a term that is being used uh, a lot right now, they're mindful. They're mindful of themselves, how they feel, the interactions they're having, they're more fully in the moment. That is incredibly valuable, that introspection. There is a second step, though. It's not enough to introspect. You also need to self-disclose. 
you need to talk to other people about the discoveries you believe you're making about yourself, whether it's your discovery about your personality or about your values or a particular skill set, how much power do you have. Uh, it doesn't matter. Anything that you learn about yourself, and tell others about it. And uh, you there is no reason you cannot talk to the people who work with you, who work for you and say, oh, look, I found out that I have this particular style. I'm really good at doing this. Well, I'm, I'm not as good at doing that. I'm glad I have you because you complement a skill that I don't have. So that kind of narrative is a very powerful narrative because you cannot explain anything that you don't understand. So just the process of explaining yourself to other people solidifies the knowledge of yourself. Another thing that you get when you explain yourself to other people is you tend to get feedback, which is the third thing that people who are very self-aware do. They welcome feedback. They say, please let me know how I did, how is this working? So you see this the same way I see it. So that invitation to get playback of people's perceptions allow people to check their own self-perceptions. So self-awareness is fundamental, and you don't need to hire anybody to develop of self-awareness, you just, you just need to introspect, self-disclose appropriately, of course, and welcome feedback. Well, there's a recipe. Thank you for that. In terms of self-disclosing, though, that is going to require an element of trust. And let's, yes, right? <laughs> Very much so. So let's well, say... I, I could, I'm sorry, you'll continue. Yeah. Well, I, I was just going to say, let's say we have some listeners out there that are in organizations or maybe it's their own business where things have gone a little off the track and trust may be thin. <laughs> I'm going to be generous here. Um, and they want to get things back on track. What do you recommend they do as far as the introspection and self-disclosure and restoring the trust in the use of power in their leadership? Well, you know what they say about trust. It's hard to build and easy to lose. If indeed, uh, there, let me give you a specific example. Um, sometimes uh, an organization has been going in one direction, has been telling people they're going in one direction, has been rewarding people for going in one direction, and then it turns out that they don't work. And now a, a radical change of direction is needed. There is nothing more important than front-end communication as to why this radical change is needed. Because if you simply change direction and you say, yeah, that was good for yesterday, but not for tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going in that direction. People may feel betrayed. So one of the most important things you can do to retain trust in a situation like this, people feel betrayed. They feel, look, I've been putting all my effort in this and now we're not doing that anymore and we're doing a like, you know, a 90 degree switch and sometimes more. And it's to have a narrative around this. It's to say, look, when we set out in this direction, this was the reason. Now, this is what we found. The environment changed. The competition changed. We underestimated this. We overestimated that. So now we actually need to reassess. In other words, connect the dots for people. The more you build people's business acumen, the more you explain to them, look, I, I, I am not just going in different directions without rhyme or reason. And there are, there is a reason for us having to now 
pack over here, to use a sailing term, and let me connect the dots for you. Let me explain this and be as truthful as you can. I know that sometimes, depending on what you're doing, you are bound by some secrecy uh, agreements and even laws. Uh, but be as truthful as you can about changes of directions, why something didn't work. Uh, never are people more interested in what you're telling them than doing a major change initiative. Never is your power and your ability to influence others more important than them. So have that narrative. And if indeed you feel that you have betrayed them in some way, you have broken that trust, uh, apologize. Uh, if you really want to fix it, you can say, you know, it was my bad and I shouldn't have done that. I should have kept you in the loop um, and uh, I am committing starting today to do so. Okay, good advice. What advice do you have for those managers or leaders, and I'll put that in quote, who have this philosophy or attitude that they never want to see other people see them sweat. They, they just don't want to admit a vulnerability, that they don't know something, can't do something. They're just like these towers of steel. Yeah, that is such an excellent question, Hannah. And one of the primary attitudes of leadership, so whenever we look for, um, you know, what are some... Um, characteristics of people who end up in leadership positions, what are some characteristics of people who end up accumulating power? One of them is self-confidence. And if you think about it, Peter Drucker used to say that the only definition of a leader is someone who has followers. Who's going to follow you if it doesn't look like you know where you're going? Right? So the idea of self-confidence is a fairly well-established um, idea in the field of leadership as well as an attribute of people who end up having power is that they are self-confident. However, we all know that one of the most dangerous things we can have is an overconfident uh, leader, somebody who suffers from overconfidence bias. They really think they walk on water. They can't imagine they're going to make a mistake. So they actually make decisions that are very, very risky because they have this feeling of infallibility or that they have all the information they need. And so the idea of let them not see me sweat, I actually have told people, look, as a leader, you should not be overconfident. You should, you know, you should really think very, uh, very carefully about the things you do. But agonize in private, because if you're wringing your hands and if you're saying, oh, I don't know what direction we're going, I don't know what to do. If you do that, people are going to lose confidence in you. So that is one category. Another category is strategic self-disclosure. Another thing is to say um, that, uh, you know, I know what I'm good at and I know what I am less good at. None of us are good at everything. That's why teams are better than individuals. That is why the best leaders surround themselves by really good people that can supplement them, right? So having a narrative that acknowledges, look, this is what I bring to the table, and I can appreciate that you bring something different to the table and that together we're stronger. I don't see that as a sign of weakness. I see that as a sign of wisdom, that we, you know, some leaders are very, very creative. Others are more operational-minded. They can see, you know, their path to clean execution. So in different situations, you're going to need different things. Knowing what you bring to the table, having a narrative around it, knowing how to surround yourself with people who bring something different, acknowledging them and recognizing them is not weakness, it's wisdom. Very good. 
lots of great tidbits, lots of advice, and plans for action. I'm just wondering, how would this all translate to a startup situation? Because in those types of cases, we have one person or maybe a very small group of people trying to do a lot of different things. How would you advise a startup for what steps they should be taking to, as they grow to be building a healthy culture and intentionally managing power wisely? I think a startup has a magical, wonderful opportunity to their startup. They can create the culture they want to create. Culture usually comes from the top of an organization. It cascades down. The, fo- the founder of our organization, the senior leadership of a young organization sets the culture of the organization. So awareness on the part of that even young leadership of uh, uh, around power, around their skill sets, all the things we've talked about in, is absolutely essential to really understand and know what is their philosophy. What, what, when they look a little bit into the future, what kind of organization would they like to have around them? Do they see a command and control hierarchical organization? Do they see a more egalitarian organization? Do they see an organization where people really love to work because they're listened to and they can every day bring their best to the table and they will be acknowledged and recognized for it. So when you're creating a culture, just look into the future and think, what kind of company would I like to have created? What would I like people to say about my company five years from now? And that would guide you, your behaviors right now. If I want that narrative five years from now, what should I be doing today to create a culture where that narrative is actually going to be possible down the road? I love that about incorporating it into the vision because the vision is one of the first things that any startup should be focusing on. You know, what do I want to be? Not just in terms of I want to beat Google or whatever their their goal is for, for going public or raising venture capital, but also the essence of their organization. And I think too often people think of their business culture as a byproduct of what they do instead of actively viewing it as a goal. So I thank you for that. That's really, really powerful. (laughs) (laughs) Some of the absolute best leaders I have met have had this narrative of what is the culture I want to create? How do I make my company the employer of choice? Uh, Particularly organizations that are operating in very, very competitive uh, markets. Uh, My daughter works for an organization in San Francisco and the demand for this young talent is huge. And uh, they they move, they move easily and they move often. So when I met one of the co-founders of her organization a few years ago, I was so impressed by how much attention she was playing to the culture she wanted to create, the type of organization she wanted to have. So people would want to work there, would want to be there when they had so many choices. That is smart leadership in a startup. And that's, in my view, real leadership, where people look forward to Monday morning instead of Sunday afternoon around 1 o'clock. They start getting that, that gnawing feeling in the pit of their stomach because they're anticipating Monday and dragging themselves into work. It doesn't need to be like that. And indeed, it shouldn't if it, we want to bring out the best in ourselves and in our organization. So... 
this has really been some great advice here. But you know, I am fascinated by the work you do and, and your career. And in the short amount of time, the few minutes we have left, I was wondering if you could share one influencer with us, someone that has had a significant impact on your thinking and, and thought leadership. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, so many people. When um, you've been around uh, as many decades as I have been in this field, so many people have contributed. Um, I often find myself, though, going to some pretty basic roots and some people who I knew early in my career, as a matter of fact. I think of uh, old bosses who, uh, before I became an academic, I had 15 years of experience working uh, in, out there in the trenches. And some early bosses I had were very influential in my thinking. Um, I had one in particular. Everybody was terrified of him. He asked me the minute he clapped eyes on me whether I came with the solution or I was part of the problem. And I remember I never again have felt I can walk up to somebody and not have some idea of what the solution might be, regardless of my position. So uh, those were early people. I often find myself quoting my father and my grandfather, who were uh, great people at uh, which pithy sayings like, what does he think he is? The last coke in the desert. That was one of my favorite ones. Uh, or my grandfather, the cemetery is full of indispensable people. And to me, that basically means that you're, you're never, it doesn't matter how good you are, how technically competent you are, um, you're not indispensable. You, you will be um, uh, replaced if necessary. So I often talk to people about developing two kinds of trust competence-based trust and benevolence-based trust. No, no degree of competence uh, entitles you not to be nice to people, right? And that is really a principle that I learned very early on. They, it's amazing. What an indelible mark to leave. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, it's just delightful how they've influenced you and how you are in turn influencing us. So thank you so much yes. for your time. <laughs> I, uh, I'm grateful for what you do and for the wisdom that you've shared with us. Thank you so much, Mabel. It has been my pleasure, Hannah. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining me today. You can get more information about today's guest and the show notes on our website, businessconfidentialradio.com. And connect with me on social media. I'd love to hear from you and stay in touch. Next week, Business Confidential Now with Hannah Hazel-Kelchner We'll be back with more business information and inside scoop you need to succeed in your business. Till then.